coming up on Venture Voice. The opportunity probably isn't in diagnostic testing. The opportunity, I think, is in providing better care. Like most people die because they don't get started on an antibiotic quickly or they don't get an IV fluid drip quickly. And, and those are like really simple things that the guidelines say you're supposed to do in a certain amount of time. But the realities of a busy hospital with a, an emergency room and a disease that's quite difficult to recognize mean that people just don't get started on those things very quickly. Like, let's not do a diagnostic. Let's actually come up with a better model for integrating data from medical records and sensors, better care standards, such that you could improve the standards and actually get a better outcome. The low-hanging fruit is actually just to manage these patients in a better way. That was the founding idea that became curious and it was to get out of diagnostics. Welcome to Venture Voice. I'm your host, Greg Gallant. I'm excited to share my conversation with Fred Turner with you. Fred is extremely impressive. He's now only 25 years old. The company he started, Curative, has over 5,000 employees. And with only $10 million in VC, they've administered 18 million COVID tests. Now, Fred told me that each COVID test costs about 100 bucks. So that implies that he's made $1.8 billion in revenue. And of course, no one knew COVID was coming. They did a very fast pivot to get this business where it is. But it wasn't all easy for Fred. Fred got started when he was 17, and his first startup went through the very prestigious Y Combinator program. He raised venture capital, and then it failed. They went bankrupt. He had to sell things in bankruptcy court and had a very rough time right before starting what became curative. So Fred's career has really been ups and downs, but it's been very inspiring to watch how he does so many pivots. And I think for a lot of us that have started businesses that haven't worked, very inspirational to know that after a failure can come success. Enjoy. Fred, welcome to Venture Voice. Thanks for having me. Tell me about the the first uh, business you ever launched on your own. Back in England, when I was a teenager, I built this PCR machine basically from from scraps and bits that you could buy on eBay. Sorry, you said PCR? Yeah, PCR. Basically, it was the same process as behind many of the COVID tests, but it's kind of um, like a backbone tool for most of molecular biology. So most stuff that you, anything you'd want to do in a molecular biology lab, you pretty much are going to need PCR to, to make it happen. And when I was a kid, I really wanted to get into a lab, but no one in the UK would let me in their lab at the age of 16, which is probably fair. And so I decided the only way to do it would be to build the equipment. So I built a PCR machine, which ended up taking quite a lot longer than I thought it would. And then once I had it, I was actually much more interested in human testing, but this cattle farmer reached out to me because he wanted to buy the machine to test his cows. And I didn't really want to sell him the machine, but he actually mailed me some blood samples with a check tape to the front. And I was like, well, okay, this is money for, for these samples, so I'll test them. And then he seemed excited by the results. And so then his friend sent me some samples and so got started with the very first version of what then became TL Biolabs, which was doing agricultural genetic testing, testing cows basically to figure out whether they were going to be good for breeding or not. Wow. So just to back up, what exactly goes into a PCI machine? Like, just explain to me step by step, like, you got this idea, where, where do you go about, do you just Google it? Can you order the parts on Amazon? Where, where does it all come together? Yeah, 
you can Google a lot of it. There's a fair amount of kind of description and papers and, and stuff online about the principle. Essentially, it's like the best way to think of it is a photocopier for DNA. Um, you put in DNA and it basically amplifies it. So you start with a really tiny amount and you end up with billions of copies of it. And that's useful for a whole bunch of things. You can use it to detect certain mutations. You can use it to you know, figure out the genetic composition um, of, of simple samples, or you can use it to prepare a small amount of sample for a more advanced technique to make enough of it to actually study. But the actual principle of the machine is it basically just gets hot and cold very fast. That's about it. So it gets to 55 degrees and then up to 95 and then back to 55. and It just cycles through these temperatures. And so the electronics behind you know, temperature cycling, obviously there are a lot of different applications where you're doing the same thing. So you can read and figure out how to do that. Mostly just, yeah, with the internet. And most of the parts were either salvaged from some other random bit of electronics or bought on eBay or like standard electronic part suppliers. What did it cost? It cost about 250 pounds to build. That's not much. Yeah. Yeah. They're typically like several thousand dollar machines, depending on how advanced they are. So a lot cheaper to build it, but it did take about nine months. So <laughs> now, were your parents worried about you like burning down the house or something with this? I mean, obviously, I guess you needed heating coils and God knows what else to control the temperature. Yeah, I think they didn't really have much of a clue what I was kind of messing around with. And yeah, setting something on fire or electrocuting myself, they were definitely a bit worried about. <laughs> and how do you even know that this was a thing? Like, you know, nobody would let you into the labs. Like, how, how'd you get interested in it? The like very initial interest came from reading Craig Venter's autobiography. He was the guy who did the uh, private version of the Human Genome Project. And after that, I really wanted to sequence my own genome but I didn't have any of the tools. I couldn't afford to pay some company to do it. Um, at the time, was still you know thousands, if not tens of thousands of dollars. And so I wanted to try and get more of an understanding of my own genome. And this was the only, only way I could figure out. Yeah, that makes sense. So you built it. What was the first thing you did with the machine once it was working? Yeah, the first gene I looked at is a gene called MC1R, which basically mutations in it can cause red hair. And my brother and, and my mom are both ginger. And myself, my dad, and my sister are not. And so I was looking at this mutation between the five of us, and you can very clearly see exactly what a single letter change in the genetic code is causing the red hair as opposed to the brown hair. And so you were able to take a DNA sample and, and actually sequence it with this machine? Yeah. Cool. And, that, and then walk me through how that led to the business after you had this PCI machine. Yeah, so I won this uh, engineering competition in the UK, the National Science Engineering Competition, and got a little bit of like local press. And I had this farmer basically cold outreach um, because he was trying to get his cows tested for this certain gene, and he was shipping the samples off to the Netherlands, and it was taking you know eight or nine weeks, and it was costing tons of money. And he saw this cheaper machine and wanted to try and basically buy it and run the tests himself on his farm. I only had one of them, so I didn't really want to sell it. But he uh, he mailed me some samples and the first couple of tubes of cow blood showed up. And I think my parents are a little bit shocked about keeping them in the fridge in the basement. But, you know, and uh, he was very happy with getting the results in a couple of days and, and paying less for the testing. And so it started with basically doing it for him and his friends and then, you know, their friends and it kind of grew from there. Were you still 16 at this point or... I was probably 17 by that point. 
veteran businessman by that point. And and, <laughs> and that was how long ago now? Uh, that was eight years ago. Yeah. Cool. So in, into testing before it was the cool thing. And yeah. how did that scale up? Like, how did you get your second customer? Yeah, the second customer was a friend of that first farmer. And then it just kind of scaled out to network from there where people heard that they could get testing cheaper and faster by sending it to you know, this place somewhere in West Yorkshire. There are very few labs that were doing that kind of testing. Um, it was pretty niche. So when somebody new popped up, it kind of raised some attention in uh, the pedigree farming community in, in England and scaled it up from there and it moved into a, an actual real lab space somewhere around that time, set up a lab that was not in my parents' basement <laughs> and, and started scaling up the testing. But it never, it never got to uh, too substantial a scale in the UK. And then we moved it out to the US probably 2016 or 2013. Uh, moved out to the US and that's where it, it started to scale up a little bit more. And while you're doing it that first time, like, how are you able to run it in your parents' basement? What, were you actually able to make like a regulation compliant lab in your parents' basement? Or was it kind of like getting by and then you moved to the lab? And Well, there's no regulation in cattle testing. Wow. Anyone can just get into it? Yeah, pretty much. It's all about, you know, obviously there are quality standards and it's about whether your customer is comfortable with the quality of the test results. These were simple tests. And what led to the decision to come to the US? Like, why not just keep scaling in England? I tried to raise some money in England and that didn't go very well. <laughs> <laughs> the UK venture community, certainly for investing in like a, a dropout young founder doing something in agriculture. I like couldn't even get meetings with investors, never mind actually getting any money. Yeah, they don't. Here, it's like a positive that you dropped out there. It was... Uh, yeah, there they want you to be like a you know, 50-year-old university professor who's uh, you know now doing a, a startup. Yeah, that makes sense. It was all funded with basically money from actually selling tests up until that point. And what was the revenue before you, when you moved out of the UK? Like, did you get to 10,000, 100,000, a million in revenue? Like, about what was it? It was about probably 100,000 pounds a year. It's not nothing, but not big. Yeah, yeah. And how, when you decided to leave the UK, like, tell me, like, people rejected you. You know, what was your age by that point? And, you know, what were you up against? Yeah, I think when I first moved, I was 20. And yeah, it kind of came about, there was, the, the like last ditch attempt to raise some money. I was I was still in college at this point. I think I was in the second year of biochem at Oxford, and I had not been able to get any meetings with investors really in the UK, or a couple of meetings that hadn't gone anywhere. And so I decided to fly out to San Francisco for this ag tech investing conference as like a last ditch attempt to see if there was any interest in San Francisco rather than in the in the UK. And I didn't raise any money there, but I did meet a lot of interesting people. I met another founder who had been through Y Combinator. And he said, stop going out and trying to raise money. You should just apply to YC and they can teach you how to actually do this. And so I went and I'd, I'd heard about Y Combinator before, but hadn't really thought of applying. And I went online and I think their like application deadline happened to be about five days from then. So I wrote the application in the hotel room and applied and went back to the UK and then it was getting into YC was the enabling step for moving to the US. Oh, very cool. So you knew when you were dropping out and moving to the US? I'd already dropped out by that point. I'd gotten fed up 
before getting into YC, I'd gotten fed up and dropped out. But I knew at least that, you know, I was going to the US and that there was um, some amount of funding from YC to set it up there. Tell me about the dropout decision. Yeah, I basically did all of the second year of what is a four-year course. But most of what I was working on was the business. And so I would spend like four days a week up in Leeds working on the company and then one day a week in Oxford. And it seemed like basically I couldn't do both things. Like I didn't have time to do both things or just be doing them both or doing a bad job of uh, doing them. And so it was a fairly easy decision because basically I could have gone back if it had all gone horribly wrong. I kind of took a year off to see how the company would go and uh, had the option of going back if it hadn't worked out. So it wasn't a completely burn the boats kind of moment. Right, right. It was more the like personal side of it. Of don't think my my family were particularly fond of the decision to drop out and move to the US. Uh, <laughs> and obviously, a lot of my friends were in Oxford. That was much more of the decision, really, than like it was a pretty clear decision to work on the company over over university. As you were um, coming to the US, did you keep up your business in the UK and and keep doing the testing there? We did a little bit to start with, but it, it kind of dried up with not being there. And the US market was much bigger. So we just focused on the US. And the US version, we were basically trying to develop a newer technology. So instead of just looking at one gene, which you know, tells you a little bit, but it's not particularly descriptive, we were looking at these panels of many genes that can predict more complex things like how much milk is a cow going to make in a sort of quantitative way rather than oh, it has this gene, which is better than not having the gene. And so we're, we kind of became much more of a like deep technology company and less of a actually selling things to farmers company. Because, I mean, that was probably the biggest reason why it ultimately didn't work out. We just didn't have the funding to actually build that new technology past really a prototype stage. And the agricultural market wasn't big enough for, for us to really raise the funding required to develop that technology for that market. So ultimately, we pivoted out of agriculture and tried to apply that technology we were working on to human diagnostics and initially STDs. And so that it was the same entity, but we changed the name to Shield Diagnostics and basically dropped the ag side completely and, uh, and pivoted into human diagnostics. And when you say we, what, what did the team look like at that moment where you decided to move to the U.S.? Yeah, when, when we moved to the U.S., it was basically just me. And um, when we first moved out, I hired a bunch of interns from literally just people I knew at Oxford who came out for the first three months of YC. Then also brought on Sam, who became uh, the co-founder um, and COO, was part of that kind of initial group. And I think there were six of us doing it during YC, but it grew to about 20 people by the time we transitioned into human diagnostics. Cool. Well, walk me through, what was the YC application process like? It's pretty straightforward. You fill in an online form and if they're interested, they invite you out to what used to be to Mountain View for an in-person interview. And then if they're interested in, in that, then you find out that day that you're in. Who interviewed you? Oh, it was, it was such a long time ago. I think Tim was interviewing me and maybe Jeff Ralston as well. Do you remember what they asked about? They wanted to understand what was the size of the opportunity in agriculture, like 
how far along was the technology? What were we trying to do? You know, how big a company could this be? Which I think is kind of their standard thing is they want to invest in stuff that can get to be you know, a multi-billion dollar company, even if the risk is high. Do you think you had a good story? Yeah, I, I think there's, I mean, I still think there's a big untapped opportunity in agriculture where farmers are actually pretty sophisticated in the technology that they want to use now to make decisions. It's just a difficult space to break into with venture because it's like just not quite big enough for their later stage venture funding. The market just isn't quite big enough, but it's still, there is still a sizable opportunity there. And so when you finished that YC interview, did you have the feeling like I nailed it, I'm getting in or were you not quite sure? No idea. Yeah, I I wasn't sure. And you find out you're in, you go there. And what exactly do you do in those three months in YC? Yeah, we set up the entire US version of the of the company. So we rented a lab space in Santa Clara. We started building that out. We got the prototypes of this new version of the testing set up and established and working. And we reached out to a whole bunch of farmers in California and started building those relationships and understanding what their needs were and how their needs differed from the agricultural industry in the UK. Cool. And then, and then uh, my understanding is that all leads up to this demo day, right? Where you show it off to investors? Yeah. Yeah. So it's three months. And then at the end of the three months, you pitch a couple of hundred VCs all in one go. You get about two minutes. They've changed a lot of stuff since then. But yeah, you, you get about two minutes and you pitch all these investors. And then afterwards, you talk to a lot of them, raise money. How that process go for you in terms of the, the story, how it was received and the outcome? Yeah, it was um, instrumental in getting basically all the early funding that that company received. We, our two main investors in what became Shield were Refactor and Andreessen Horowitz. And those were both through YC. So up to this point, uh, was the YC money the only money you, you had raised? So yeah, during YC, it was just the YC money. And how, how much was it back then? So 120,000. Okay, and then what was the, uh, the round you did with Andrews and Horowitz and all? Yeah, it was a, a 4.4 million seed round. So you finished that round. What's it like to just go from having uh, you know about 100K in the bank to 4 million in the bank and hiring people and all that jazz? Yeah, it was pretty crazy. I'd never seen that much money before, right? And so it was a lot of just trying to figure out, okay, now... I've been trying to raise money in the UK to do all these projects and move this technology forward. And now I have the funding to do that. How do I actually execute? So it's kind of like shifting gears from trying to figure out fundraising to figuring out like how to run a company. And it was around the same time as well. I think we passed about 12, 13 people. And that's like the time in a company where everything breaks or the first time that everything breaks because it's like at the 10 to 15 person size and then it breaks again at 100. And so figuring out how to like run the business without me doing everything or like directly managing everything and how to actually build out the company structure for the first time. So what exactly breaks the 12 people? You can't talk to everybody every day. You can't like directly communicate everything to everybody. And so you have to actually set up communication structures and like structures for information to flow to people. So they still have context, but it doesn't come from directly talking to you. What exactly did you do as the CEO to, to make that shift? Oh, I'm trying to remember back. That was a while ago. Um, I mean, a lot of things wrong at that point. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did a lot of things very differently at Curative than we did um, at Shield. Yeah, I, I think a lot of it's just starting to write things down and have process and have meetings and all hands and email updates and you know basic stuff. But 
it's a shift when you're used to just like working on building things yourself. Yeah, I can imagine. Did you have resources? Were you reading books? Were your investors helping you, mentors, coaches? Where were you getting this information from? Yeah, there's a lot of books, a lot of like reading. You know, there's, there's a lot of good online resources and blogs, programs, essays, and things like that. And trying to glean from that what has worked for other people. And then just trying a lot of stuff out. A lot of stuff just didn't work very well. And some things were like revolutionary. And it's like, wow, okay, that's how you do that. Do you have examples of one thing that went really badly and then one thing that worked really well? <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think of something that went really badly. I think there were like a lot of examples where I thought I had been clear about what something should look like or how something should happen. And I learned the lesson that you have to repeat everything many times to people to make sure that they actually definitely understand. And that just saying something once is rarely sufficient as like communicating context. Um, you actually have to ensure that people have all of the context they need to understand and then that they actually listened and heard what you said and now understand what they're supposed to do. And so I think the difference between like somebody understanding something and somebody hearing something, there were a lot of a lot of cases where you just like went in the wrong direction for a couple of weeks because of misunderstandings. Do you remember any, any specific case where you're just horrified with like what somebody came back to you with after you thought you'd uh, explained what you needed? I, nothing comes to mind, but there are a whole bunch of like little things in, in technical meetings where it was just not being clear in communication and sort of learning how to be much clearer and how to set out expectations for people. So you were, you were beginning to say before about the pivot you made to... Uh from cows to humans and yep. doing human testing. Tell me more about how the, the product evolved and, and how you did that kind of market discovery to have a conviction uh, or to, to be able to actually throw in the towel on the, uh, the cows and agriculture and shift to humans. Yeah, it was around when we, we started uh, thinking about raising a Series A and just through some like informal conversations with investors, it became kind of clear that it wasn't that agriculture wasn't working. But it wasn't working to the extent that it would need to work to raise a good Series A. The market just wasn't big enough to build a, a big enough company off just agriculture. But most of what we'd actually spend the time and money doing was building out this technology for testing, which was designed to be a cheaper way of testing for many things at the same time. And so we started looking at, okay, well, can we use this in other applications that would make this a bigger opportunity that would have an easier job raising money. And so we looked at a, a whole bunch of different areas, like expanding into other areas of ag, food testing, and ultimately human diagnostics was the most interesting untapped opportunity. And, and the focus in particular was on identifying antibiotic resistance. So looking for uh, not just detecting that you have a certain infection, but actually what drug is going to be most effective at treating it. So it was a, a long process of kind of, it was interesting to go through sort of stepping back from the company like day to day and really digging into just a lot of reading and a lot of talking to doctors and scientists and, and understanding what that market looked like, having never been in human diagnostics up until that point. It must have been an interesting conundrum because like you had product market fit, but the market just wasn't a venture size market. Right. But probably big enough to have still made a viable business and make you rich. Yeah, it just the new technology that we're working on, it needed more funding to like get to maturity. And so we could either kind of drop back down to just doing the basic tests and run, you know, like a, 
sort of smallish lifestyle business doing that or double down on the technology in other places. And so we chose the last one. That makes sense. So, so you raised the Series A. How much money was that? Total was $8 million. What steps did you take after that? Did you immediately kind of scale up to that level of burn or was it more of a slow build for the company? Yeah, it was, it was a slower build. We wanted to sort of take the time. The first step was hiring people who knew the human diagnostic space better and in particular, building out a clear lab for the first time. So we, we bought our first clear lab, CLIA. It's the regulation for a diagnostic lab that tests human samples. Got it. So we, we built out a lab from scratch, and then we built another one in, in San Jose. Learning how to do that, hiring the people to do that, it's a whole new set of, of regulation. The science is very similar, but the actual implementation is very different in humans. You can imagine. What, what scale did uh, ShieldBio get up to? We got to a couple of million annual revenue on the STD testing business. There were a lot of challenges with STD testing. Like the US healthcare system is just a bit of a mess in some places. And in STD testing, there are a lot of challenges. Even if you have a better test, it's really hard to get paid for because most people who get an STD test, they kind of fall into one of two groups. They either don't have insurance, but do really need a test, in which case you don't have anybody to bill. Or they do have insurance, but they don't want you to bill their insurance because they don't want a bill getting sent to their house that their spouse or family might see that shows that they got an STD test. And so you're then kind of left with two buckets where no one really wants to pay. And so even if the test is useful and doctors use it, you can end up doing a lot of tests and you just don't actually get paid. For so there was a, just this gap in insurance coverage. And then there's the like launching a diagnostic product and actually getting it used by doctors. There are a lot of issues that come up, mostly around like integration and setting up like data flow. How do they order from their electronic medical record? How do you send them back the results? All of those integrations take months and like actually cost tens of thousands of dollars, even though it's basically like a simple API call. In healthcare, everything has to cost you know a hundred times as much and take a long time. So you can have a clinic that wants to use the product, but the implementation process was so burdensome that it made it very difficult to grow. How long did it take for you to have to discover those two uh, challenges? About 18 months, we kind of we had to actually like launch the product, go and try and sell it, and really sort of see that we could sell it. And we had some customers, and it it was growing, but it it was a challenging thing to grow quickly. And so that's when we started also looking at. There's a lot of pivoting here. <laughs> uh, looking at okay, well, it doesn't not work in STDs, but are there other infectious disease markets where this would be exciting? And we'd hired by this point Vlad who is now the CSO at Curative um, as the VP of R&D into S.H.I.E.L.D. And he had this pet project in sepsis that he wanted to work on. Side project in what? Sepsis. And what, what's that? It's when you get bacteria in your blood and your immune system massively overreacts and you can very quickly die, not from the bacteria, from your immune system's reaction to it. How did you just end up having a little side project uh, dealing with that? Well, he, he's had a pretty seasoned career in diagnostic development. I think he's at 10, 5, 10K products, which is the, the sort of standard bar for selling a diagnostic and 13 or 14 CE marked tests launched across various different companies, both working as head of R&D at a big public company and at a startup. So he kind of been around 
the block a few times with making diagnostic tests. Makes sense. And so he has a side project and how does it come to kind of set the course for the company? Yeah, so we were, were looking at, you know, needing to, to raise more money to keep growing the STD business and to expand into the sepsis testing, which we really only ended up doing for about six months because we went out to raise the Series B and ultimately that was unsuccessful and that was then the end of the company. So that was the end of December 2020, where we got very close to raising a Series B. We had a signed term sheet that then got withdrawn and then that was that. Wow, so I'm sure that must have been painful. I've been in similar spots myself. But, you know, for those people listening, because it'd probably be helpful for them to like just hear what that all means and the logistics of all that. Like, yeah, just walk me through like when you were going through that fundraising process and you're at the term sheet, like how many months of cash did you have in the bank at that point? We got the term sheet in December. We had about three weeks of money left. I'd gone out to fundraise at the end of September. It's a pretty long process. We pitched, I think, about 80 different investors, putting together all of the, the data room and doing all the follow-up pitches and, and diligence requests. It's like pretty much a full-time job for you know several months getting to that point. And so then, yeah, we thought we had we had a term sheet. There was one like final step of, uh, of technical diligence that they wanted to do before closing. And we'd already started working on the, the docs. And we actually, we passed the technical diligence as it was written in the term sheet. We actually exceeded what was written in the term sheet and they decided to pull out mostly for strategic reasons. They were uh, a strategic investor, uh, another big public buyer company, and it got killed by their COO. How'd they tell you? Was it a phone call, an email? Yeah, they called us up and said that it wasn't happening. What was your reaction? Well, the first reaction was to try and find any way to save it. The challenge was with them being a strategic investor or their team were domain experts. And so it's very challenging to sort of then fall back to a purely financial investor because the optics is, well, this domain investor is pulled out, so there must be something wrong. From everything we're able to glean, they didn't tell us very much. It seems like they pulled out because they thought it would be competitive with one of their other internal products. And basically, they didn't need to invest, they could just sort of focus on their internal product instead. And so when they told you they weren't in at, at this point, how many weeks or, or days of cash did you have left in the bank? At that point, we'd taken a little bit of extra bridge money from one of the investors, I think we had about two weeks. And we set a closing date with them, we were on like the second round of the final documents, it was all moving forward towards a close. And what was the monthly uh, burn at that point? I think we're it's about four hundred thousand a month. So you must have been looking at that and knowing, like, if you just have a two-week window over which to either like line up a backup investor or shut it down, so you don't have a negative bank balance. Like, how exactly did you budget that two weeks? How quickly could you determine that that you were screwed and that you couldn't get another investor and start moving from most of it trying to find another investor so we can we had some of the team work on basically setting everything up so that if we needed to shut down we could do it in a matter of days i just focused on having as many meetings with investors as i could it was over christmas and new year so it's not exactly the easiest time to actually meet with investors most of them are you know were on vacation but i met with as many people as, as i could and tried to see if we could find a deal somewhere and yeah, it got to, I think it was like the 2nd of January and we just, we had nothing in the funnel. And so getting a whole new investor and getting them through the process was just not going to happen. So 
yeah, January 2nd when we, we threw in the towel. While you were trying to find a new investor, like what feelings were going through your, your head and your body at the time? Oh, I think at the time I was mostly angry because I felt like the company that, that had given us a term sheet had kind of led us on. And, you know, if we hadn't signed the term sheet, maybe we could have got a term sheet from a different investor after having signed it and told people that it was signed. It's then a lot harder to go back and like swap out the lead investor. So I think, yeah, at the time it was mostly kind of anger and, you know, not knowing like what would happen next if we should have down. I've been working on it for a very long time at that point in its various iterations and not knowing what would come next. And you dropped out of college and moved to a whole other, the other side of a whole other country for it. Yeah, exactly. I'd been doing it for so long and it was like such a big part of me that kind of thinking about like existing without it was just strange, like a strange idea. What was the moment where you, you felt like you were done shutting it down? Um, it probably took until about mid-February to feel like it was actually... We went through an assignment for the benefit of creditors process, which is a whole thing I'd never even heard of before. We'd taken on some venture debt, and so the company like died owing money. And so you have to basically bring somebody in to sell off any assets that are left to pay back the creditors. So setting that up was quite a process, and that costs about $100,000. So we had to go sell some bits what we could ourselves to get the $100,000 to then get the ABC running. And then you know, independent group comes in and, and sells everything else off to the highest bidder. I mean, it sounds painful. Not only do you have to shut it down, but you've got to work your ass off just to satisfy the creditors and shut it down. Right, right. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a fun process. And you finished that. I don't know. Do you remember what you did the day after? You, you felt like you were done with and, and didn't have any more responsibilities? I mean, pretty much immediately started curative. I think. Yeah, the like founding idea behind Curative was through doing all of this diligence for Shield. I think what we, or what I noticed was there is this massive opportunity in sepsis where the US government spends $43 billion a year. It's 1.7 million cases, hundreds of thousands of people die. And this basically just gets worse every single year. It's not improving, it's getting worse. But the opportunity probably isn't in diagnostic testing. The opportunity, I think, is in providing better care. Like most people die because they don't get started on an antibiotic quickly, or they don't get an IV fluid drip quickly. And, and those are like really simple things that the guidelines say you're supposed to do in a certain amount of time. But the realities of a busy hospital with a, an emergency room and a disease that's quite difficult to recognize mean that people just don't get started on those things very quickly. So if you don't start them on any kind of drug, then a test to say which drug's going to work isn't really very helpful because you didn't give them anything. And so step one is like start them on a drug. And then if you start them on a drug, a test to say whether another drug might be better is actually useful. But the, like the, the big part of this problem that needed to be solved first is actually the care delivery bit. And so the founding like idea behind Curative was between Vlad, Isaac, and I, who had all worked at Shield, was, okay, let's try and like, let's not do a diagnostic. Let's actually come up with a better model for basically integrating data from medical records and sensors, better care standards, and a kind of clever way of billing insurance such that you could improve the standard of care for these sepsis patients and actually get a better outcome, basically just by starting them on the right drug faster without even having a test. And the idea was, well, maybe we'll come back and we'll do a test later, but the low-hanging fruit is actually just to manage these patients in a better way. That was the founding idea that became curative, was to get out of diagnostics. 
what happened in that diligence process that gave you that idea? Well, there were a lot of these clinical trials for other people who tried to develop sepsis tests, where in some clinical trials, they show it like having a massive improvement. And in some clinical trials, they show it really having like very little effect. And when you kind of really dig into the data and, and look at what's happening, the ones where they see a massive improvement, it's where they've already done all of the other things right. They already started them on an antibiotic. They already gave them fluids. They identified the patient very quickly. They're managing the patient well. And those are not kind of realistic conditions for a hospital. Those are, you know, in a really high-end research hospital where you're doing everything perfectly because it's a clinical trial. When you look at the other trials, it's much more like real-world patients in real clinical settings where it's a very difficult disease to diagnose and recognize quickly. And, you know, if you become septic at 3 a.m. on a Saturday night, it's going to take longer to get an antibiotic and that's going to affect the outcome. And, and so it seemed like, okay, well, if that's what the real world is like, then we could spend all this time making a fancy test. But if the test isn't actually going to improve the outcome for patients, then what's the point? And maybe we should be working on whatever the actual problem is that kills hundreds of thousands of people a year. I think I was also just very frustrated with diagnostics at that point <laughs> and all of the problems with like getting paid by insurance companies for STD tests and electronic medical records just being an absolute nightmare. And, uh, definitely had a desire to not be in diagnostics or like straight diagnostics and be doing something different. Was there any part of you that was just like after all the heartache from S.H.I.E.L.D., maybe throwing the towel at entrepreneurship and just get a, get a good paying job or go back to Oxford? It was like, I think, a fleeting moment and I couldn't really imagine doing anything else. So, What is it that you like about running companies? What attracts you to it? I like the the problem solving and just kind of coming into, I think particularly when they get bigger, you get a lot more of this, uh, coming into like a situation and where something is, isn't working and basically figuring out like why. And it might be technology, it might be regulatory, it might be that the structure of the people is just wrong for the problem and then fixing that and then moving on to the next thing. So tell me about Curative. It all went exactly as planned, right? <laughs> Yeah, well, kind of. I didn't stay out of diagnostics for very long. Just when you thought you were out, they pulled you back in? Yeah, basically. It was probably March, and we were trying to set up a clinical trial for sepsis to test this new idea. And the hospital that we were working with, that we'd worked with well before, and they were very fast to respond, suddenly rescheduled the call from March until June. And this is like a guy that usually was very easy to get hold of very quick. And his reasoning was, oh, we're getting ready for COVID. And so that was, I think, the first like inkling for me that this was going to be a bigger deal than it was being made out to be in the media at that point, that this guy wanted to push back until June. In the end, he, yeah, probably June of this year is more realistic. <laughs> and so we th that was like entirely on hold, and we couldn't really move forward with the sepsis stuff at all because all these hospitals were locking down. And so the initial like move into COVID testing was partly driven by okay, well, we we raised about a million of seed money and we're going to need to go raise more money, but we actually can't make any progress on this. So what do we do in the meantime? Because everything is closed. And then partly driven by kind of looking at COVID testing. And I think all of the problems that I had seen in Shield with launching the STD testing kind of highlighted a lot of systemic problems with diagnostic testing in the US. And it was very clear that because of those problems, scaling existing testing capacity was going to be exceptionally difficult. And clearly, we were going to need more tests than what were available. And the entire market is like built to have 
very little margin and very little elasticity. And it really has like a tiny bit of flex for flu testing every year because flu is seasonal, but that's about it. And there's really no more flex built into the system. The margins have just been squished year over year. And now it's all about doing everything as minimalistic and efficient as possible. And, and so that doesn't bode well for trying to scale testing, you know, 100x or 1000x in the US. And so we were looking at it. And I think the idea or the, the sort of initial idea was, well, all of these existing labs are going to have to work around the impediments of their existing infrastructure. And if you actually design it from the ground up just for COVID, you don't have any existing infrastructure. So you're not limited in the design choices that you make. And that actually allows it to scale much faster. And so we started off, yeah, early March, and there was, I think, nine of us at the time. A number of them carried over people who were at Shield and were laid off by Shield and then rejoined for the next round and uh, tried to figure out how to launch a COVID test as quickly as possible. The first step was you need to have a lab with the, the clear license. And we, we built two of those at Shield, but it takes about nine months to get the license. So obviously, we didn't have nine months. And so we common practice is to just actually acquire another company that has a clear license. We didn't have any money to acquire a company. So came down to LA in search of a lab with a clear license to partner with. The thinking being we could bring the test and they would have the license to actually run the test. And through actually a, a friend that I met at YC, he was doing a YC company in the same batch as me and then went on to become a VC. He knew of this lab in LA that was doing sport drug testing that obviously wasn't doing very much because all of the sports were shut down but had a clear license and 14,000 square foot of lab space that was sitting empty. And so I met up with them and very quickly we formed a joint venture between their company and Curative and started setting up the testing. And I think the first test probably ran about two weeks after that. For those of us who don't understand the test, like how do you even figure out how to make a test for a virus that only entered the world stage a few weeks ago at that point? Yeah, the, the actual test itself is very simple. It's just a PCR test, right? And PCR has been around for 40 years. It's very established. Most of the tests exist for COVID are based on the initial CDC test that was developed. And our test basically is very, very similar to the CDC test. We didn't invent any new science. I think that was a really important part of scaling fast and, and kind of a big learning from Shield was we, in Shield, we tried to do all this new fancy science and new technology and it just takes a really long time to make anything new, like reliable and work. Um, and I think it was essential for scaling up COVID quickly that we just basically took something off the shelf that already worked, which was the CDC test. We made a, a couple of minor modifications to improve the efficiency. And then we just got really good at doing it at scale. So tell me about that scale, because that's everything you had to scale up so fast. And it sounds like you very quickly went to just a level of scale way beyond what you'd ever done before with, uh, with Shield. How'd you figure it out? How'd you scale? Yeah, it went from zero to uh, we're coming up on 18 million tests total completed and about 5,000 employees across the country in just over a year. And by the way, I took one of your tests. I'm here and um, I was in New York all last year. And then I, uh, like a lot of other tech people, I drove down to Miami where I am now and wanted to get a test, scheduled it online. It was, it was very straightforward process, felt very modern. Excellent. I'm glad you had a good time with it or had a good experience with that. Uh, yeah. And, and it came back negative. So it was a good time. Good time for me too. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, COVID obviously created like a very exceptional 
environment to do this in, to do scaling up that fast. And it's kind of like an experiment in if you have unlimited demand, like how fast can you actually scale something? What is the like upper physical limit <laughs> to, to how fast something can scale? I think a lot of the, probably come down to a couple of things, like just an exceptional amount of hard work from a lot of people of not really sleeping and working 100-hour weeks. I mean, I don't think anybody took a single weekend until probably this year, like realistically. Like last year, was just seven days every week. Just the intensity of it, I think, drove it very quickly. Having a good team and then really focusing on like end-to-end delivery. At the beginning, we started out just being a lab and just basically selling tests and relying on everybody else to you know, set up a drive-through or do the appointment booking system or whatever it is. And we just focused on getting the lab capacity up and running because at that point, there was very little lab capacity. And so we needed to build out, you know, obviously all the lab space. We hired hundreds of people into the labs. And then a big component was setting up the supply chain to make sure that we weren't running out of all the, the stuff that goes into the test. And we built out a whole bunch of kind of unique ways of getting materials that do the same thing but we're not being used in lab testing right now and qualifying them and basically bringing them into the lab supply chain so we weren't just competing with other labs for the same stuff. We were actually adding new capacity overall to the country. So that was a lot of the early focus. And then what we started to realize was, okay, well, now we have all this lab capacity, but nobody knows how to actually go get samples from enough patients. People want to test patients, but they don't know how to go set up a drive-through or get that patient to sign up and get them the test result. Obviously, a lot of the early stuff was cities setting that up themselves, but a lot of the big cities that had the means to do it had already done it by that point, but there were still plenty of places that needed testing and couldn't set it up themselves. So we we kind of made this transition probably around June to focusing on the full stack service and basically being the end-to-end provider wherever we could so that you could have an integrated experience for the patient. So they can make an appointment through the same workflow you know, on our website that they get the results through. There are testing sites all over that you can you know, see a nice map of and pick what's most convenient to you. Uh, we do all of the logistics. So actually, if you had a test in Miami, we were running charter flights from Miami to Washington, D.C. just to move samples so that we could get a 24-hour turnaround time. I had no idea my uh, slide had visited D.C. Yep. Yeah, if it was in Miami, it most likely went to the DC lab. So we set up all of the logistics and like, you know, a bunch of software for tracking all of that and really focusing on the like end to end experience for the patient, um, including staffing a lot of the testing sites. So we have thousands of employees out in the field which staff and run these sites. I think that let us scale much faster because we then weren't, we were limited by the demand of public health in a certain jurisdiction to want to test their people but they didn't need to know how to do it themselves. They just needed to decide that from a public health standpoint, they wanted more testing. And then all we need is a parking lot. And you point us at a parking lot and we'll do everything else. Yep, and that's, that's where it was, the parking lot and the little, it looked like a food truck almost. Yep. <laughs> was it the kiosk or the mobile van? The mobile van. Okay, yeah. Tell me like when you first realized like, hey, COVID's going down, we're going to do something about this. And as you said, unlimited demand, like, what steps did you take? Obviously, you had to raise money, but I'm sure you know your your crew of people that you did your last company with had never managed an organization that size. Like, how'd you raise the money, and how'd you go about 
what was the first step to building a team you knew would have to be hundreds and then thousands of people? Yeah, we didn't actually raise that much. I think overall, we, we only ended up raising about 10 in total. And you know, for all the, the entire beginning phase, we raised about a million dollars. Most of it was funded off selling tests. And at the, certainly at the beginning, most of the contracts were cash pay and people would pay up front. And that really allowed us to scale the lab. And it was kind of you know, an understanding with a lot of the local jurisdictions that they needed more testing. And to get more testing, they needed to invest in helping us scale it up. And so the beginning... So like a city would call you up, they'd say, we need more testing. How much was it per test and how big were these contracts generally? Pretty big. The price it varies depending on like how much of it we do, if we're just the lab or if we provide you know the entire service. But it's typically around the Medicare rate for testing, which is about $100. If we do extra services, you know, it, can, it can be more than that. Uh, at the very beginning, um, we were basically seeing people pre-buy the tests to guarantee capacity. And that let us pre-buy all the equipment. Right, so the importance of cash flow, getting the cash up front. Right. So we didn't we didn't actually have to raise very much money at the beginning, or really ever. I mean, we raised less than Shield raised over the course of its existence. So it was really funded more by cash flows. And in terms of yeah, hiring, I mean, hiring at this pace has been challenging. I think we, I took a very different approach to what I had done previously and sort of common, or maybe maybe the common way of like spending a really long time finding the perfect person for every position and a bit more okay, let's just get people in and you know they're either going to like show they can do it within a week or they're going to show they can't do it within a week and then firing people very quickly. Higher fast, fire fast. Yeah, yeah, but at kind of and at a more extreme pace than usual. And just, I think, advertising widely. And at the beginning, there were you know, a lot of very talented people that didn't have anything going on because of lockdown and just wanted to come and help. And so it was more kind of, getting them all in and, and trying to like design an organizational structure for them to fit into. As it scaled beyond that sort of first couple of hundred people, we then started bringing in some more experienced you know, leadership and management. Um, we hired uh, our COO, Chris Vanek, who was a, a colonel in the US Army, um, led the 75th Ranger Regiment, thousands of days deployed in Afghanistan, and knows how to lead a group of thousands of people. We did bring in a lot of that operational expertise. And actually, I think the, the combination of like US military background combined with a bunch of good scientists is actually like a really powerful mix. How'd you meet this guy? Through one of our investors, DCBC, connected us to this group, Gotham's, that we work with on a lot of the government contracting. And they're kind of government contracting experts. It's a group of veterans who work on contracting, logistics, operations, and um, we hired him out of Gotham's. I know from my company sells the government too, and I know they can often take a long time and they have a lot of procedures to buying things. What was it like during this height of COVID? Were they able to just pull out the stops and buy it fast? Or did you see like, hey, you know, it's just going to take two months to start testing because they have to go through XYZ procedure? Yeah, at the at the beginning, there was a lot of you know, emergencies declared and waiving of various requirements to buy things. And then we've, we've seen, you know, progressively over time, more and more of those things go back into place. And now, you know, on, on the vaccinations, a lot of the contracting can, yeah, can take months. And so we had to set a lot of it up pretty early to make sure that by the time it's actually a vaccine, everything is in place. It's an amazing story about the cash flow. Like, 
how large are the revenues gotten? Is it hundreds of millions now in revenue? Billions? Where where roughly is it at? Yeah, we we haven't put out the, any of the numbers publicly, but 18 million tests in total. So you do the rough math on where that puts it. <laughs> yeah, so 18 million and add two zeros for a hundred dollars a test, and uh, approximately a lot of hundreds of millions. Yeah, it's it's gone. You know, now at this point, very different from at the beginning in terms of a lot of it is insurance pay now, and the collection cycle on billing insurance is many months after having done the test. So it's definitely, yeah. So the cash flow is reversed in the, a major way and yeah. a much more, I'm sure, annoying way for you as uh, someone running a business. Yes, we had to, we had to learn a lot about you know, setting up like an insurance billing process at this kind of scale and transitioning a lot of the cash flow from like direct pay contracts as the CARES Act money started to dry up um, at the end of last year to more of this insurance pay. And it's got to be a weird thing because you're setting up all this capacity. And if you were quickly rolling out a coffee chain or a fast food chain, you'd hope the demand would stay the same for decades to come. Yep. But of course, you know, uh, you know, hopefully with the vaccine working, it'll, it'll reduce the need for testing, I imagine. But where do you see this market going and how quickly, um, you know, I mean, do you see it? Will the vaccine reduce and or even eliminate the need for testing? Yeah, I think testing is not going to go away you know, anytime soon, but then the numbers were definitely going to go down. I think, yeah, it's, it's definitely a unique market. You know, we said from right back in the very beginning that our, you know, our mission is to put ourselves out of business in testing, right? The goal of testing and trying to address the pandemic is to not need to do that anymore because the pandemic is over. I think, you know, we're a year in and we're definitely not there yet, but it seems the vaccines are starting to have an effect and, you know, we're starting to see reduction in some of the numbers and yeah, that's the goal of what we're doing. And so we've transitioned more of, of our operations over to actually vaccinating people and yeah, have been scaling that up as we've seen, you know, decline in some of the testing volumes. That's a very good pivot, right? To go from, uh, from testing to vaccination. Right. And then and I think vaccination is going to be needed for quite some time. Um, there may be these booster vaccines for new strains. Uh, realistically, you know, COVID, I don't think, is going to go away entirely. We're not going to vaccinate 100% of people. There's always going to be some need for kind of baseline surveillance testing, um, but it will be more like flu every year. So yeah, the smaller market for sure, but there's going to be a long-term need for both testing and vaccination. But we're also looking and beginning to transition some of the infrastructure into post-COVID things as well. And do you, do you see like once the world starts to, or, you know, the, the market starts to even out, I imagine that puts you kind of squarely in competition with CVS and pharmacies and just all the places that used to do flu shots. Yeah, I think we, we have quite a unique offering compared to the pharmacies because we kind of, they're sort of in the middle and we go, you know, one of two ways. We either can build an enormous site that can vaccinate 10,000 people a day in a massive parking lot with hundreds of nurses, um, so similar to what's going on in Dodger Stadium right now, or we can provide vaccines to you know, directly into communities that may not have the same level of access to healthcare or not be comfortable accessing healthcare through some traditional channels. We can send out a mobile van, establish um, vaccination clinics at community sites in collaboration with the community and really focus on the health equity of vaccinations. 
And that sort of bit in the middle where you're doing, you know, a couple of hundred at a pharmacy, that's not really what we do. So I think it's complementary to the, the pharmacy approaches in really getting broad vaccine access. Cool. So do you see COVID keeping your company busy for the next five, 10 years, or do you think it's more like a couple of years and by then you'll figure out your next pivot and have to find some new business line to ramp up alongside the rest? Yeah, I think it's a couple of years. There probably will be some base COVID testing forever, but it's going to be you know, at, a, at a lower scale. So it's definitely not going to keep the entire company busy you know, beyond a couple of years. And we're already investing pretty heavily in a number of new projects, kind of all on this theme of integrated healthcare. So similar to what we've done with COVID testing and with vaccinations, not just providing you know, one component like the lab or the nurses, but trying to actually provide an integrated system where from a patient standpoint, you have one integrated experience and we can actually focus on providing a better experience for that patient at every touch point and basically provide the entire value chain and entire you know, healthcare delivery chain for whatever that event is. I think that's one of the things that allowed us to scale very quickly and also just provide a better standard of care with COVID. And I think there are a lot of opportunities in the US healthcare system where it's very fragmented and broken up right now. And the boundaries between different organizations tend to be where it's a mess. No shortage of opportunities to fix things in the uh, US health system. Right. What's your job like now as CEO, 5,000 person company, you've kind of gotten to this more stable state now, uh, you have your colonel um, commanding the troops day to day, what do you spend your time doing now, Fred? Yeah, it's kind of a mix of like firefighter in chief and future stuff. So just with, with obviously the speed of everything, there's always problems that need to be solved or, oh, this new thing's come up and we have to figure out how we're going to implement this. That's like a big part of it. And then everything else right now is focusing on on the future and how how can we utilize everything we've built for COVID in a post-COVID world to improve other areas of healthcare. We want to kind of build that out as uh, not just picking like one thing that we're going to just do one one like element of healthcare, but actually kind of building it more as a uh, as like a portfolio or a a set of different products we're working on almost like in an incubator style model because i think there are so many opportunities with the infrastructure we've built but they're going to take some time to scale up and they're going to operate on on real world timelines and not covid time how's your own stress level uh change like are you in a better place now than a year ago is it equally stressful now figuring out how to reposition this 5000 person company for a new world we don't quite know how to look yeah, it's pretty equally stressful overall, but it's like, I think it's a different type of stress. I mean, this time last year, I was living in uh, Motel 6 and trying to figure out how to like set up COVID testing without us all getting COVID in a lab in San Dimas with 40 people. So it was different types of stress. It was a lot more like doing things um, you know, myself rather than kind of trying to coordinate things. Like I was basically homeless living in a Motel 6. I think I lived in the Motel 6 for like three or four weeks at the very beginning because it was right next to the lab. And uh, I had an apartment in San Francisco, but everything had moved down to LA. And it was not the time, nor did I actually have any time to go like and try and find a place in LA. Now life is a little more, a uh, little more stable for you? Yeah, now life is a little bit more stable. I'm not sure I necessarily get too much more free time. There's still, you know, way too many things going on. 
and you know all, all of these new projects uh a lot of them are, are super exciting and it's trying to apportion time to working on all these new things but making sure that everything we're doing right now you know is working and operating as it should obviously providing vaccines to i think we're at about 15,000 people a day right now um, that we're vaccinating on average it's no small undertaking and the quality of that needs to be absolutely perfect and so there's still a significant portion of time in overseeing and making sure that we're we're doing that right which job do you like more the job CEO now, a 5,000 person company, much more uh, kind of, I imagine, you know, a little more uh, abstract in, in how you address problems versus like the, hey, let's go rent this lab and let's set this up and I can hire someone today and then see they have the output tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, I think we've actually done quite well at maintaining that almost like, you know, there are some areas where yeah, we're, we're a big company and we become like bureaucratic and it's kind of annoying, but you have to have that to actually like execute at scale. Um, but there are also, I think, some areas where we've maintained that culture of just executing in small chunks and, and really iterating in order to make sure stuff gets better every single day. Um, I think we've been able to maintain a lot of that and maintain that pace, certainly through into vaccinations, but now into these newer products as well. So I, I think I prefer the bigger scale. It's You can just get so much more done. And yes, uh, you know, you start something off and you don't immediately tomorrow see that that person is doing that thing. But then like in a month, you see, okay, well, there are like a thousand people out there vaccinating people. It's more, the scale of it is more fulfilling. When the world starts to go back to normal and you get to take your first uh, vacation, what are you going to do? Yeah, we actually started, um, my girlfriend and I, planning a vacation for some point this summer, which would be like the first extended period of time or like more than a day that I have taken off in, since the start of the pandemic. That's great. Well, it sounds very well deserved, Fred. Thanks so much for your time, for telling your story, and for ramping your business up. It's a very uh, providing a very needed service, and look forward to getting my own vaccination. Excellent. Thanks for having me. Take care. Hope you enjoyed my interview with Fred. Very impressive to hear what he's done with Curative, and I can't wait for the next chapter as they pivot to vaccinations and stabilize for whatever the post-COVID world looks like. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure you help more people find out about Venture Voice. Go on iTunes, give us a review. That's what matters most. But also tweet about it, email your friends about it. Word of mouth is always the most powerful way to grow. And finally, I love feedback. You can tweet me. I'm just at Gregory or look me up on Instagram at Gregory there too. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you next time.